Hi everyone, I'm Utkarsh, uh, the author of uh, The Seductive Illusion of Hard Work. Today is a very special day because I get to have a conversation with uh, somebody who's obviously, you know, been a friend or a mentor, but uh, he's actually written, you know, a blurb uh, on the front page of the book. Um, so, you know, it's a chance for us to have a discussion on this uh, topic of what is uh, hard work and why is it so seductive? from somebody who's had a distinguished career across uh, countries and continents and somebody who I'm proud to call a mentor, a friend and a guide. Um, I often turn to you, Sri, for uh, all kinds of advice. So happy to have you here. It's wonderful to be here, Utkarsh. Congratulations again on the book. It's, uh, it's no mean accomplishment. We're going to talk a little bit about this, you know, on this con in this conversation. But congratulations on this accomplishment. Thank you, Sri. It means a lot. So, you know, like, uh, let's just like have a two-way dialogue about, you know, what is hard work meant to you and why is it so seductive, your mental models for success, your career, uh, so on and so forth. So um, let's talk about essentially when you were thinking about, you know, yourself as an 18-year-old, as a 20-year-old, uh, could you have predicted that you will be a partner at Bain & Company living in San Francisco. Um, what was the process of picking your career? What was it like for you? Walk us through the confusions of a 20-year-old, if at all there was any. Well, you know, Kirsch, it's funny. Uh, I, had, I had all the confusions as an 18-year-old, as a 20-year-old, as a 30-year-old. You know, I don't think it stopped for a while. Um, I... I wasn't sure as an 18 year old what I wanted to. I wasn't doing very well, by the way. You know, a lot of people uh, assume that I might, I might have had a stellar academic career and I did not. I was actually doing fairly badly, you know, when I was finishing school. I didn't do that well, you know, when I was in college. Uh, and I was, I was lost. I it felt, you know, looking back, there was this big cloud in my mind. And I wasn't exactly sure what I was, uh, or what I wanted to do. Uh, and I sort of meandered through life, I would say, uh, you know, for a long time. Uh, I enjoyed, what I discovered was, you know, I went to IIM Calcutta. I graduated from there. And then I discovered that I enjoyed working, to be very honest with you. Um, and I put actually my heart and soul into it. I enjoyed many aspects of work, the intellectual challenge, getting things done. Uh, but I don't, I don't think I picked a path per se. I, I didn't say that I really wanted to be, let's say, in sales and marketing or I wanted to be. The one thing I also had, uh, I would say, an affinity for uh, was really to be in tech. It was seductive. That was the other seductive part of it, which is I wanted to be in the technology sector. So I ended up working for this company that no longer exists called a tech or digital equipment which at one point of time was the second largest uh, computer manufacturer in the world after IBM. So I worked for them for a while. Uh, and that's that's really all I knew. And then I ended up you know, coming to the US, working here with digital, uh, and then I ended up going to Wharton, and we can talk about that if you like. But uh, And then I joined Bain. 
Um, and I think Bain was the first place where I felt like I had some level of stability. I, I can't tell you when I joined Bain that I, you know, I've been at Bain for 24 years, except for a time when I left to do a startup. But I can't tell you that when I joined Bain that I, I, could, I predicted I was going to be here for as long as I have. Uh, but there were many aspects of the job that I really liked. But I can also talk a little bit, you know, during the, during the conversation about why I left and also why I came back. Uh, yeah, that'll be to... super interesting to explore. <laughs> but let's let's stay on the earlier part of your career. Uh, sure. When you were, say, um, deciding between, you know, your career paths and you were you know, interested in tech, what part of, like, did somebody advise you into choosing X or Y? What was the thought process like? Yeah, you know, I have to tell you, I was, uh, it was, I was pretty terrible at this. Looking back, you know, there are some things I did really badly. One is that I didn't explore enough. And one of the things I tell my children is that, that they should explore, whether it's trying out new experiences, whether it's talking to people. I don't feel like I talk to enough people. Um, I'll give you an example. So when I was applying to business schools in India, uh, I was I, I wrote the common the common exam for the, the cat. I, the cat. I wrote the cat at that time, and I I got interview calls from. There were only three IMs at the time. I, it was so far back. There were only three IMs at the time. I got interview calls from all of them. But I also got uh, before that. I wrote an entrance exam for Jamnalal Bajaj in Bombay. I got an interview call from there, and I went for the interview. And I happened to be standing outside waiting to go into the interview room to talk to the director, this lady. And I, I, I saw that they had a class scheduled for different majors. And one of the majors was finance, the other was operations. And I had no clue that, you know, when you go to a business school that you actually have the different majors. And in fact, I remember going into the interview room and this lady asked me, so what do you think you want to major in? And I just read on the notice board that there was a major for finance and operations. So I said, well, you know, I think I want to do operations. I had no idea what an operations major was. And uh, I didn't talk to enough people. You know, I didn't, I didn't really understand what this was all about. I didn't explore. And one of the things that I really tell people these days is spend the time to figure out what you might like and what you might not like. Even you know, take advantage of experiences that you can have today that I potentially didn't have. So I, I, I was, I was clueless to be honest with you. You know, Sri, one theme that I touch upon in the book, in the earlier parts of it, is uh, the whole notion of pressure to conform to yeah. to something, to to stability, to uh, to what's considered the right path, and. Yeah. Uh, do you think that has changed uh, in India or uh, other parts of the world? And now that you've lived in multiple uh, parts of the world and interacted yeah. with people from around the world, do you think it's more of an Indian or a South Asian thing, feeling a pressure to you know, know what you want to do with your life early on, or uh, it's all pervasive? I think um, it is certainly much more, it's much sharper in the South Asian community, especially in the Indian community. And you see it in the Indian diaspora around the world. You see it here in the Bay Area where I live. You know, you have families uh, who put uh, 
lot of pressure on their kids. You know, they may say, well, you know, we don't really put pressure on, the, on our kids, but that's not true. I think, uh, you know, the way they, they overschedule the kid, there's a lot of expectation around what the kids should do. But this is not to say, you know, there's some kids who are naturally gifted, you know, who, who, are, who have the ability to deal with all of this and who are extremely talented. But I, I know of a lot of children over here, for example, and this is true for India as well, where uh, it's very clear that what they're doing is to really conform to their parents' expectations. You know, there's a great saying that I read once that uh, the greatest threat to a childhood is the unlived life of the parent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you, when you are a parent who has all these expectations of a child, uh, and you're trying your child to do all these things, there is something that, that uh, you end up missing out on. There's something about the childhood that, that you know, this, this part about the exploration, you just never do, right? How do, you, how do you bring out from within what is it that the child really wants to do? But there's also societal pressure, there's economic pressure, right? People are concerned about job prospects, people are concerned about sustainability, you know, economic sustainability. So I can understand a lot of this, but there's a lot of pressure. There is, and uh, it, it seems to, you know, exist, like it, it existed when you were in your early 20s, it still exists, perhaps, yes. you know, it's becoming a lot more competitive as well. But what I, uh, through the book, I argue that if you want to really create a category of one for yourself, yeah. you need to essentially follow your curiosity. So a, a phrase that we hear often is like, follow your passion. But yeah. I've always found that uh, one, passions change over time. And yeah. second is that it's also uh, fairly hard to figure out what your, yeah. what's the, you know, one or two things that you're passionate about. What are your yeah. thoughts on this entire passion argument? What, what is passion to you and yeah. like, how is it manifested in your life? Yeah. You know, that's a great question, Utkarsh. You know, I, I hear a lot of people say, what the advice that they give youngsters is, you know, follow your passion. When I think back on my growing up years, it was not clear that I had a passion. And it's not clear that if I had really followed all the different things that I wanted to do, that it would have been the right thing for me. And I think, therefore, it's become a little bit of a cliche, which is to follow your passion. There are times when you need to wander a little bit and let your passion find you. And, and I think I'm a big believer in that. You just don't know, if you're not open, uh, you just don't know what might come your way. And so I think there are two categories of people. I know there, there are kids, you know, who at the age of eight are very clear about what they want to do and, you know, pursue the passion all the way through and become very successful. But I think there are a lot of people who, like me, for a very long time, you know, I had this discussion with my daughter who you know, and I show this graph of my life. I just, uh, I'm very analytical this way, so I show this graph of my life, and I tell her there are points when, for a very long time, I just didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, and then I discovered that maybe consulting is something that I enjoy, I like. Uh, but even that took a while. It's not like I came into Bain and I said, this is exactly what I want to do for the rest of my mm. life. But over a period of time, I discovered there were many elements of this that I really like, and I felt like I could uh, pursue. But uh, but what is your point of view? Tell us a little bit, actually. I want to turn the tables over you, Utkash. Tell us a little yeah. bit about your point of view on on uh, following your passion. 
You know, uh, Sri, in that regards, I think uh, your daughter and I have a lot in common. Uh, mm-hmm. That, you know, uh, both Sri and I have multiple interests and multiple curiosities. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you and I also have some things in common, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Business school, uh, you know, interests in business tech, all of that. And uh, I have struggled to, uh, in the, you know, in my early 20s, um, to figure out, you know, do they need to be exclusive? Do you mm-hmm. need to pick a path in your early 20s? And uh, the answer that I'm much clearer now, uh, mm-hmm. with the benefit of five, seven years of, you know, uh, experience, that it doesn't need to be exclusive so early. But you mm-hmm. can perhaps look at your curiosities and then essentially let data guide the way. Because mm-hmm. you realize that, you know, say writing energizes you and it's not mm-hmm. a one-off thing, it regularly energizes you. Mm-hmm. Then the next micro experiment would be to actually start writing consistently and see whether you have any readers. The micro experiment after that would be, sure. okay, perhaps can I publish a blog? Yeah. If that goes well, you basically need to up your stakes. But uh, the realization that I had is that uh, you don't need to know from the very beginning, as long as you're willing to conduct multiple micro experiments. So I think what has uh, worked uh, well for me um, Mm -hmm. in just being comfortable with myself is the fact that uh, as long as I'm conducting micro experiments and learning from them, I'm okay. I don't need to be too successful too soon or prove a point to anybody. Uh, but myself, that, you know, I'm making some progress. And then, uh, you know, through writing, I've discovered that progress actually gives a lot of meaning and satisfaction, much more than, you know, uh, arriving somewhere. The truth of the matter is that, you know, whether you're a partner at Bain um, or an entrepreneur trying to, you know, uh, figure things out and build something, you'll never arrive. So mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's like, you know, it's a series. And if you need to enjoy the process to, to go there, so I think uh, that way, uh, combining a bit of, uh, you know, the analytical aspect of you and the curiosity of, uh, you know, uh, people like your daughter is something that I found quite uh, uh, rich comfort in. And and tell us, uh, Utkar, so this, this point around micro experiments is great, right? Which is that you try something, see if you like it, see if you want to pursue it. But tell us a little bit about the book itself. You know, forget about writing a blog. You write a column every week for the Mint. I know uh, you you do you blog regularly. But you know, the 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 thought of putting together a book uh, just seems like extremely daunting. And did you know from the beginning that you were going to write a book? And did you say, okay, this is the path to my writing a book? How did you think about that? So, uh, Sri, some part of it is that I've seen my mother, right? My mother is a is a writer okay. and a professor. So I've actually, and you know, like her father, my late Nana, uh, was also a writer. Everybody in my family has been uh, very interested in this craft. Actually, not not too many people in my family are in the business space. Nobody mm-hmm. is actually, uh, just my brother and I. So, um, writing was something that I always wanted to do. I realized mm-hmm. through my micro experiments that I was uh, I was enjoying the process and I was actually uh, being able to communicate my point better every time. So I was able mm-hmm. to see progress in the writing mm-hmm. and uh, the enjoyment never ceased. It never became a task. 
So I mm-hmm. thought that, uh, you know, the journey from, say, a tweet to a blog to an article, uh, to a longer article, to a book might be something that I enjoy. Because at the same time, Sri, I was also thinking about what I want to do with network capital, right? Should it mm-hmm. be, you know, a passion project or should it be, you know, something larger, something, you know, something which is, uh, you know, a full-time engagement. So for that, I also wanted to see whether, you know, my theory of work in the 21st century, how should young people uh, think about their careers, at least my point of view, does it have an audience? Mm-hmm. And book is something that is, uh, you know, that's a, that's a decent challenge if you can put it together and then there is decent audience readership for it, then perhaps what you have to say, uh, you have one more data point that you're perhaps on the right track. So it was intentional that way. It was something that I also wanted to figure out uh, whether I had something that people wanted to listen. But there's also a role of people reaching out. So what happened was that the book was a result of multiple uh, serendipities as well Mm -hmm. as uh, intentional steps. So... Uh, the graduation from, say, the World Economic Forum writing I did to the Mint articles to the Harvard Business Review articles uh, just got me m- a lot more readership each time with each mm-hmm. step. And mm-hmm. until, uh, uh, you know, around the time of Mint and World Economic Forum, I started getting some inbound requests from publishers saying that uh, there is a book here. Um, we are just surprised you haven't written it yet. Would you be interested? I said, of course, mm-hmm. like, you know, I mean, I hadn't figured it out then, but you know, what I mean, I said, like, I would love to give it a shot. And um, that's essentially how it came. So readership grew, then inbound started coming a little bit from the publishers. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I knew was that I did enjoy the process. And uh, so writing the book was clarifying for me also from that standpoint, Sri. So, Utkarsh, I want to explore one topic with you, which you and I have never spoken about, which is the importance of writing, even if it's for an audience of one. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my point of view is that uh, while you've had, you know, a successful blog, a set of articles, and even a very successful book, I I feel that he, that everyone should write. I feel that it's a, like to your point you made earlier, it's a very clarifying process. It's a very clarifying exercise that everyone should write. Um, and that, you know, there is a sense that I know I write. I, I don't really, I mean, I, I've, write, I've written articles that have come out in the press and so on. I'm not as prolific as you. But separate from what I put out there, I do, you know, write for myself. I just find, I just find it sometimes clarifying, sometimes cathartic. Uh, is, what's your point of view on that, Utkash? I, I agree. I think um, writing is, uh, you always write for actually a small audience. So mm-hmm. when, I, when I wrote, I, um, I wrote the book keeping in mind, you know, the, essentially people like my younger brother or your daughter, you know, people mm-hmm. who are in their early 20s, late teens, mm-hmm. um, people perhaps, you know, uh, 30s, 40s as well who might be in the process of figuring things out and what Mm -hmm. things that they should know as they create their category of one. But it wasn't like thousands of people. I just kept like five, seven people who who I wanted uh, to write this book for. And it's something that I've realized now that, you know, Mm -hmm. more established writers do. They tend to not 
right uh, for like 10 million people. They write for a small, keeping in mind a small set of people. And then mm -hmm. it so happens that uh, a lot of what you have to say, if you write it reasonably well, it resonates with a lot more. So mm -hmm. writing is a life skill tree. I mean, whether you want, whether you're a partner at Bain or mm -hmm. you're a, you know, a teenager trying to, you know, express his or her thoughts, it's really yeah. important to be able to communicate that because writing enables you to think better and sure. uh, translate uh, the thoughts that are say up in the air into. Yeah. Uh, you know, tangible words. And I see that in your writing. Uh, I, I see that you, you also written and co-authored a whole bunch of reports, right? Like yeah. the long form detailed stuff that Bain puts yeah. out. Yeah. So I think that in it, that's a micro book in itself. Like that's, yeah. those are like rich documents filled with data. Do you feel like uh, uh, smarter after writing or does the process of writing makes you make you smarter? It, the process does. So it's interesting, Utkarsh. So when I, you know, my articles for the most part are written by me, right? Uh, maybe a little less so today than earlier, but um, I remember, you know, within Bain, people would say, why don't you tell us a topic and we'll put it together. And I was like, no, that's, that's, that's not what I want to do. First of all, it's got to be my thinking. And more importantly, it's got to be my voice. I have yeah. a certain way of expressing myself and I want that to come out in what I write. Um, and so it's very, very important, especially, you know, when I was, you know, when you and I were together in Davos, I used to, you know, write these articles, uh, you know, about my experience over there. And that was completely, you know, my voice, my experience, the way I thought about things. And that that's actually quite, uh, quite important. So I would say maybe the, you know, the one key takeaway, if not anything else from this conversation for people who are listening is, you know, build this life skill of writing, right? And and if you can get help, you know, to do it, so much the better. But it's actually very, very important. Uh, I know that with new tools and new technologies, uh, people might feel like, why do I need to really write? But the aspect of, you know, getting more clarity on your in your in your thinking, the way you do that through writing and structure and all of that, I think is very important. Yeah, and uh, what's happening, Sri, is uh, uh, that uh, people now are uh, leaving their jobs, full-time mm -hmm. jobs, to basically mm -hmm. start newsletters mm -hmm. and write uh, blogs. So basically, this mm -hmm. communication industry, if you do it really well, it can also be a thriving career. So another point mm -hmm. that I make in the book is that uh, if you know how to write well and if you know how mm -hmm. to speak well, which obviously, mm -hmm. you know, people like uh, leaders like you do, but uh, there are traditional careers for it. For example, mm -hmm. jobs like Microsoft and Bain and, um, mm -hmm. you know, other companies like that. But you can also have these, uh, you know, your own writing and your own voice as mm -hmm. a viable career. Yep. So uh -huh. there are people. And I was going to say, of course, I was going to agree. I completely agree with that. Uh, I do think, you know, the emphasis is that irrespective of whether that becomes a career or not, irrespective of whatever you choose to do in life, it's a great life skill. It's a, yeah. it's an ability for you to have clarity in your thoughts. It's an ability for you to think about, uh, you know, how you can persuade other people to come to your point of view how to even become better in terms of what you're doing. So all of those things are actually very important, I would say. Uh, I, want to sp I want to continue to stay on this topic of the book 
Utkarsh, and also your writing. Uh, creativity is very hard. You know, I can tell you, I work a lot with you know clients of mine who keep saying we want our organization to be creative, and it's very tough. You know, especially when a, the culture of an organization has become set. I don't want to use the word ossified, but let's say it's become set. You know, the yeah. culture that's developed over a long period of time. And, and you know, a new CEO comes in and says, I really want to change the culture and I want people in my organization to become more creative. I can just tell you, you know, it's obviously very tough. Um, what is what is your perspective? You know, let's explore this from two angles. One is your personal angle of, you know, how you think about creativity and then how you think about creativity in organizations. Yeah. I mean, let's... let's jam on this a little bit because mm -hmm. i think you have a lot more to say uh, on this than i but my uh, my my creativity whatever that is is a function of uh, you know the micro experiments that i have been conducting for a very long time mm -hmm. like uh, i act seriously i write seriously i enjoy having difficult conversations with people uh, with a, with an intention of learning not so much mm -hmm. to proving them wrong and mm -hmm. I'm actually quite comfortable, uh, you know, broaching sensitive topics over dinner. Uh, sometimes people don't like it, but uh, you know, it's also I, I find that you know, there's that you need to go deeper sometimes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you need to have an ex explore. I think I remember once you and I were on in a car uh, with mm -hmm. a bunch of people on a, on a very cold night, and uh, you know, like there was a politically sensitive conversation going on at that time, and I think both you and I leaned into it. We were not mm -hmm. saying that, oh my, we need to look uh, mm -hmm. the other way. I think mm -hmm. we briefly had that conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of what I know and the examples that I've put in my book are lived experiences of mm -hmm. uh, stories that I've uh, directly seen or uh, you know, friends of mine, mentors of mine have told me and participated in. So one is just like, you know, you need to let experiences come to you, which mm -hmm. I think uh, has worked well for me. Uh, the other thing, uh, Shri, is that when you combine disciplines, right, like mm -hmm. uh, engineering, management, poetry, mythology, uh, liberal arts, you combine mm -hmm. all of them, you're able to approach, say, a culture problem mm -hmm. from the, um, you know, from the lens of, say, math mm -hmm. and a math problem from mm -hmm. the, uh, you know, lens of history. And yeah. it just makes some of these uh, uh, connections stronger. Yeah. And the third, which is, I think, a little bit uh, related also, is that I think the sets of people that you mm -hmm. regularly uh, keep in touch with. For example, you and I now know each other for, uh, I think, seven, eight years. And That's the conversation right. was like, it started off as a you know general conversation about, you know, general things. It was, there was no, mm -hmm. like, like no outcome that was expected uh yeah. you know you didn't want anything from me i didn't want anything from you but the sheer, if you keep in touch with the wide set of people from different backgrounds i think you get smarter i yeah. feel that you just learn a lot more and uh, i think these things have really um i think enabled me to become slightly more creative um and I, I'm reading this really interesting book by Matt Ridley. It's about how innovation works. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think you'll enjoy it as well. Mm -hmm. He talks about the fact that innovation is often slow, messy, involves lots of love, yeah. lots of time. And there are lots of people involved in the process. I think same is true for any amount of creativity, I feel. 
Um, so I think that's my take. What What do you feel? And then we can jam a little bit yeah. on the organizational no, so, question. So my take on this is very similar to yours, of course. You know, I, I'll tell you my lived experience, which is when I work with CEOs, uh, and they and they talk about this, right? So, my advice to them is that you know creativity is a process for which you have to have a lot of patience. You can't say, you know, I'm going to flip a switch. This individual is suddenly going to become creative, or the organization is suddenly going to become creative or innovative, right? Whichever lens you want to use. And so the thing is that you have to be patient. You have to explore. To the earlier point we were discussing. You have to be okay with failure. You have to, uh, in fact, you know, showcase individuals who have taken chances, and who, uh, and you should be okay with the fact that they extended themselves, but may not necessarily have succeeded. The problem is that most organizations reward only success. They don't reward, you know, innovation. They don't reward the people who go out on a limb to do something, and so. That's at the organization level. I'll, the, the other thing that I'll say is that when I talk to CEOs, what I find, what, what they find most useful is not necessarily the expertise that I might bring to the table about their industry. But very interestingly, it's my knowledge of other industries. Yeah. And, you know, over the course of my career at Bain, I worked across a whole range of industries. It might be healthcare, financial services, construction. I'm working right now in enterprise, you know, with an enterprise software company over here in the Valley. The, the interesting thing is that people feel like, you know, I know my industry. So if I'm talking to somebody in enterprise software, he's like, well, I know enterprise software. But I tell them, you know, think about if I give, a, give an example of how a consumer products company is approached let's say channel management, or thinking about new avenues of growth, suddenly it's part of a conversation that's very different. And you know, then, then it becomes a back and forth about, okay, is this applicable to me? How can I apply it to my industry? And so part of, part of I think what people need to be aware of is that it's not just about developing deep expertise in one thing, which is very important <coughs> these days. But it's also, you know, making sure you have the peripheral vision about what's going on in other places as well. Uh, yeah. that, that combination then, when you bring it all together, can be very potent. So that's... I that's... completely uh, agree on, uh, on, on that point. I want to ask you a quick uh, follow-up on that, on the failure aspect of it. You know, mm -hmm. because, uh, I mean, many clients of yours must be public companies that mm -hmm. have to be very intentional about their performance every quarter. Yeah. Um, are they more risk-averse on average because they can't afford to fail or are they risk-averse because they think that what got them here will get them to the next level or is there something else? No, I think it's much, much more so the latter, which is that there's a certain way they've been operating for a long time. Uh, there is also a lot of resistance, uh, within the organization, right, to doing new ways of things. So my advice to clients of mine is it starts from the top. If you're really serious about this, you have to make a public commitment to doing this. As a CEO, you have to say, this is important to me. I believe in this. And I'm going to see this through. And seeing this through is not, see, trying it out for a quarter or two, but it may be trying it out for many, many years, right? Um, 
putting in place the right right people uh the most talented people that you can find putting in putting them in charge of you know things that you don't know whether they're going to be successful or not and then if it's not making sure that uh they are uh, they recognize for the effort and for what they did but and try again otherwise if you try something for a quarter and you say well it didn't work let's go back to what we are doing there's going to be somebody else who's going to come and disrupt your industry right i mean we've seen so many examples you yeah. have to find a way to continue to invest in things that are going to be important for the future of your industry yeah and i think just for the listeners the point that you made about uh, looking at different sectors from different lens i mean in in technology today product management is uh, you know the new uh, aspirational job a lot of people want to be that but it comes essentially from my understanding from the fmcg world people used to have uh, product managers for ketchups and so on and so forth and now they've taken the same job recreated it in the tech industry and uh, it happened because a lot of cross pollination that somebody thought of and then created yeah. in this space so really well said about looking at the same things from uh, different lenses yeah shree so now uh, based on what we've discussed uh, i want to ask you uh, two more questions uh, sure. just on the coming uh, on these two points one is um, about deep generalism or deep generalist mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the other is about intelligence so let mm -hmm. me start with the intelligence bit Sure. in the book i talk about intelligence comes in different shapes or forms right in mm -hmm. many many parts of the world usually intelligence is considered your analytical ability your mm -hmm. math ability your ability to take certain kinds of tests yeah. and i do feel that uh, even prestigious companies very big companies top notch companies are really biased towards they, they equate intelligence of, of that kind to being intelligence of all kinds but in your experience of managing hundreds of people thousands of people um hired people fired people like uh, well, like i don't know if you fired people or not uh, but like generally like having a wide exposure of uh, mm -hmm. lots of people mm -hmm. do you really think intelligence comes in different shapes and shades and forms and uh, if yes how did you learn about this well first of all i completely agree that intelligence comes in different shapes and forms and i will say that in the context of india we sometimes mistake uh, the ability to do well in standardized tests as a form of intelligence let me let me make that assertion over there right this is not to say that people who do well in standardized standardized tests are not intelligent but i think the reverse is uh, also true the reverse is true which is that people who don't necessarily do well in standardized tests doesn't mean that they're not intelligent um and then you know we place a lot of emphasis on gpas and so on uh it was interesting when we started being in india in 2006 uh, we went to the iims we recruited from there and uh, we didn't uh, we were a little clueless even though i myself am from an iim it had been many years since i'd gone back to campus to recruit i remember you know we went back to campus we started recruiting over there we were told that uh, the rule was that you can ask the students their gpa or, or something like that i forget what it was anyway um so we said okay fine yeah in in fact in the us we don't uh, yeah, when we the grade non disclosure yeah the grade non disclosure in most schools so in fact we don't do that and we our experience was that uh, it's really not had an impact in terms of the quality of talent we bring in right so when we bring in people into the us um 
we find that uh, you know we we find out later what the gpas might be there's really no correlation in terms of uh, how well they do at bain with uh, with the gpa uh, i think it's an indicator i think you know and a gpa is a marker uh, it's it shouldn't be the only marker or shouldn't be the only indicator of you know how you assess an individual's potential um but i think it's i do think you know analytical skills for the jobs that we do at bain for example is very important so we do tests for that so irrespective of what, what your gpa might be the case is yeah but to go back to the story of you know to my uh, so when we went to the aims the long story short we recruited some people um you know who we discovered later had terrible gpas but they did well you know we they ended up doing really well at bain uh and then we found out that actually what the, all the other you know all the other consulting firms and recruiters were doing was actually figuring out gpas in another way before they even you know put put anyone on the interview list or made an offer uh but our experience our lived experience as an organization is that there are many things that are important uh you know how the individual fits into the team is important uh obviously the analytical skills are extremely important given the kind of job uh, given what we do for our clients but there are many other things that we have found are extremely important for an individual to have a long term potential in our company and that's true for every firm what what the points of emphasis are different for different firms but every firm should figure out you know what is it that they really want to test for what is it that based on their experience will enable you know an individual to succeed yeah and i think this is something that i wish a lot more recruiters uh, sort of uh, focused on and many in most great colleges abroad there is great non disclosure mm-hmm. but grade should be taken as one metric not the sole metric unfortunately it becomes here the qualifying criteria um, right. yeah and now let's uh, tell me about uh, your deep generalist aspect so in the book i talk about two different models one is the tiger woods model which is you know, knowing from the get go that you know i i want to be a great golfer at 3 you know you're already you know at, at a significantly higher level than other people and the other is a roger federer model where you sort mm-hmm. of try think expose yourself to different kind of sports and experiences and then apply the learning of one to the other and get to a certain level both are successful what are you are you a specialist are you a generalist are you a deep generalist um tell me that and then i have a few questions yeah, on that so i i am a generalist i think you know it comes from when i was growing up so even one of the reasons why you know i talked about this that i didn't do really well academically i didn't do well not really i didn't do well at all you know in school in high school and then even in college i did just sort of okay uh but part of the reason was that i used to read a lot i loved reading i loved uh you know i would go down rabbit holes of authors and books and so on and uh one would argue you know that it was a wasted youth so to speak that i spent all this time reading but i just loved uh I, you know the i remember my room had all these bookshelves and the one indulgence my parents and grandparents uh, you know were, were able to give me was my was that uh, or going to lending libraries I, they don't exist anymore in india but when i was growing up this was there all over the place you could go to become a member of a lending library and borrow books 
And so people of my generation, for people of my generation, that is quite important. But what I think it did for me was it uh, opened my eyes to a lot of things. And I loved continuing to explore different areas. One of the reasons why I'm in consulting, by the way, just, you know, we, we haven't explored this, is that I like the fact that I work on different areas. That, you know, uh, because of the nature of what we do for a living, that we end up working on different areas, explore different things. And I still learn a lot. Today, every sort of engagement, every project that I do is a learning experience. And that is a, one of the primary reasons why I've continued to be in consulting as long as I have. But even within consulting, to your point, of course, you know, you can be a deep specialist, or you could be a deep generalist, or you could just be a generalist. I would, I'm definitely not a specialist. I, that I, I can be sure, I can tell you. Um, I'm probably a deep generalist. I've worked in a variety of areas, and I've become deeper because of the number of years not because of anything else. I've become, after 24 years of being at Bain, I've become deeper on a whole range of areas. Um, and so I'm definitely a generalist. I want to be a generalist. I feel like if I was, for me personally, if all I did was one thing over and over again, I think it would frustrate me. So this, for me, exploration is still very much a part of my life. It's very much a part yeah. of my, my uh, DNA. And uh, so, and I find that, and I find that uh, there are individuals, you know, especially as you become more senior, as you become a CEO, as you become, you know, let's say part of a, of a board, whatever that might be. This is a very important aspect of what makes you successful, right? It's not just the focus on the numbers for today, which you have to do. You have to deliver that. But for you to set up an organization for the future, you have to know a lot more. You have to be exploring. You have to discover a lot hmm. more. So, Sri, you, uh, um, you have, again, like you have expertise um, in a lot of areas, right? TMT, enterprise SaaS, like, you know, the main website lists, like many, many areas of, uh, you know, your clients or project. Um, when you start learning some of these new areas, perhaps some of them would be new. Yeah. What what helps you grasp concepts quickly? How do you upskill yourself? And is it different from the way you upskill yourself when you were, say, 25 or 35, something like that? Yeah, that's a great question, Utkarsh. I'll tell you, you know, when I was starting off at Bain, I would say the way I would do it is I would read, right? I would go find things to read and I would... Uh, uh, so when I started off at Bain, I did a lot of work in the enterprise software space. A lot of my clients were in enterprise software. And part of it also came because I developed a deep uh, interest in it. So one of my partners, I was a consultant at the time, but one of the partners asked me once, and it was a great question. He said, what do you do when you're not at work? And uh, hmm. what, what aspects of work do you pursue when you're not at work, if you know what I mean? Right? Hmm. And I reflected on it, and what I was doing actually was I was reading up a lot on enterprise software. I really liked mm -hmm. learning more about that. And so it's sort of, you know, it's an indication of what might be of interest to you and what you might want to pursue, right? Today, it's more about uh, talking to people, right? People who have who might have expertise in that. In fact, obviously, we, we, in this probably not a topic, uh, you know, that we don't have someone at Bain or even outside uh, that you want to talk to. 
Hmm. And so that, that's what I do. I, uh, so this point about, you know, during the early stages of my career, or even when I was growing up, that I didn't talk to enough people. I, I, I'm trying to remedy that. I'm trying to rectify that. So I, I do spend a lot of time talking to people to understand the pro, uh, topic. So people like, you know, engaging with people when you do that, you need to know uh, the right kind of questions to ask. And, you know, it's more people centric, you're a yeah. lot more. Yeah. yeah. And just just on that, uh, Utkarsh, you know, I think we stress a lot about, you know, do we have the right questions? Are we trying to appear intelligent or not? And I used to have that as well, by the way. I, I'll just tell you that, uh, you know, I would advise people, don't worry, you know, don't worry about having the perfect question about don't just just go have a conversation see where it takes you right uh, don't be afraid of appearing dumb i used to be very afraid of you know am i appearing intelligent or not after all i'm at bain and company what will people think if i ask a dumb question and now i don't worry about it at all i'm very open there, there are by the way there are there are even today there are times when i will set a time with a brand new consultant because that individual knows something about a topic that i want to learn more about and they're like, you know, what can we tell you? And I'll tell them, you'll, you'll be surprised. You know, you know more about this topic than I do, and I want to learn from you. Uh, and so I think this aspect of don't worry about what people are going to think. Just just go and have the conversation and see what happens. I think I think it's very, it's very important. Yeah. So, I mean, I wish more uh, people at 25 would get this advice. Because, you know, at 25, there's this urge to be in control, be smart. Yeah. And I think when you that you get more and success, you get more confidence. Yeah. And yeah. There's a lot of pressure there. I remember I remember that. I mean forget at twenty five, I probably was like that at thirty five. You know, and, uh, that 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 was true for a lot of my life. And I I just discovered that over the over the course of uh, my life, people don't remember the fact that you asked a stupid question, surprisingly, right? So mm -hmm. it's not like, you know, they're it's going around. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like they're going around for the rest of their lives thinking, oh my gosh, what a, what a dumb question this guy asked in 1984 or whatever it is. Right? <laughs> they don't remember that. But, but you know, if you don't ask those questions, you're never going to grow. You're never going to learn. So anyway, Utkash, where I wanted to go next was back to you. I wanted to, um, you know, one of the big gaps that I found whether it's people in their personal lives or in organizations, is taking an idea and taking it through to execution, mm. right? Completing something. I think a lot of people have great ideas. I'm sure you know they're sitting around saying, "Oh, you know, this is a great, uh, you know, what the world needs something like this." To put it another way, but they don't take it through to execution. It could be a variety of reasons. It could be that they don't have the opportunity, they don't have the access. But for people, let's say, who have the access and maybe even the opportunity to take through the execution, they don't do it. I want to talk a little bit about your own experience. It might be the book. It might be network capital. Uh, it, may be, it may go back to your framing of this as doing micro-experiments. What advice do you have to people in terms of how to take, you know, it, it may be a great idea that they have and how to take that through to completion, to execution. Yeah, uh, Sri, I think we should also jam on this question because people will learn a lot more from your take on this. But my two cents on this is uh, 
a bit related to what you said about enterprise software. You know, stuff that you would do in your free time or stuff that you would do anyway. Because I think everyone can make a really meaningful, successful, and financially viable career if they choose smartly. You know, if I try to play somebody else's game, I will never ever, you know, get to a certain level because, you know, I mean, I'm just playing on somebody else's term, somebody else's game. But uh, the choice of the problem that you want to focus on and the people you want to work with, um, I think is most important, right? Mm -hmm. So when I was thinking about, you know, who to ask blurbs for, right? Like, you know, who, who should I essentially go to for uh, writing my forward, asking uh, the publisher had given me, I think, uh, five or six, uh, you know, slots that they give authors for nonfiction. And I was thinking, who should and I invite? So I my first filter was that, okay, does that person really know me, my thought process well? Mm -hmm. And has this person really seen me through, you know, the course of time? and seen my, you know, decision making change. And, uh, you know, whether it's you, whether it's, uh, you know, Professor Klaus Schwab at the mm -hmm. World Economic Forum or uh, Dr. Tarun Khanna from Harvard Business School um, and, uh, you know, as other mentors of mine. Um, I was very intentional about that because a lot of what I have uh, done in my life, the interesting stuff has come from choosing problems well and partnering mm -hmm. with people meaningfully. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my relationships last. A lot mm -hmm. of my problems that I focus on, uh, uh, they are problems that I generally find very interesting. So the book, mm -hmm. I think the process of writing it was uh, very interesting because I was not interested in writing a bestseller. I was not mm -hmm. interested in writing the best book. I was not interested in writing the Bible of X. Mm -hmm. I was very interested in picking things that I found naturally very curiosity inducing like the generalist concept of failure how do you bounce back should you mm -hmm. you know like should you overcome the pressure of performance by this way or that way so it made the process very rewarding and the byproduct of that is that uh, because you choose something that you would naturally do in your free time so it doesn't seem like pressure or work mm -hmm. um so choice is the most important thing every time i have followed uh, or done something where I felt that, oh, I should do this because, mm -hmm. you know, it is a rational thing to do or it is what everybody else does. I think the results have been suboptimal. Mm -hmm. Every time I've said that, okay, how do I let my natural curiosity be unbridled, mm -hmm. unblemished? I think that's the times when the project has gone on to uh, conclusion and yielded favorable results. So, you know, um, Shri, there is, uh, you know, this article, the first article I wrote for Harvard Business Review was called Creating Your Category of One, Building Your Category mm -hmm. of One. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. there I argued this point, that as long as you don't want to become a partner at Bain just because you look at Shri's life and love Shri's life yeah. and you want to, you know, become a partner because you like, you know, what you, what you see from the outside, that can be one metric. Yeah. But that cannot be your defining metric that I want yeah. X because I see X. It needs to come from within. And this realization didn't come to me one fine day. This realized because I did uh, try to make some of these uh, 
decisions where I was trying to, you know, do the right thing or do the uh, thing which was expected out of me. But uh, it was less satisfying and less successful than when I really uh, drew from my inner curiosity. Yeah. But just to, like, yeah, but just just to continue the thought, right, Utkar, so uh, let's say, you know, there are people who are listening to this or watching this who also have ideas similar to, it could be, doesn't have to be writing a book, let's take network capital, right? And so who have an idea, but haven't really acted on it, right? They haven't sort of taken, forget the third step, they haven't taken the first step. What what is what is your advice to them now that you have, you know, you've taken network capital to a certain stage? You forget the book. The book is an outcome of many things. But let's mm. let's talk about network capital. Right? Yeah. What, what's your? Uh, they're maybe they're as curious as you are. Maybe they've explored as many things as you have. They come up with a few, maybe not just one, but you know, many many good ideas, but they haven't acted on it. What's what's yeah. your sense of what's going on over there and what they should do? Especially so we uh, on Network Capital, we run these uh, weekend uh, cohort-based programs where yeah. you are, we are very proud to have you as our faculty for CEO fellowship. But there's another fellowship that we run, which we call I Don't Know What I Want to Do With My Life Fellowship. Because our theory is that most people don't know what they uh, want to do with our lives. And we are all figuring it out one micro experiment at a time. So in the fellowship, we basically the first week is spent on doing one micro experiment or just like figuring out, look, if you want to build a career in policy, OK, take the first step. We will help you. We'll connect you. We'll like uh, give you the support system that's required. But the most important step is to scale down the experiment. So if you want to become, uh, you know, if you want to build a career in consulting, just yeah. Like do the first step, just see whether you write uh, like enjoying the creating the first, you know, draft of the, you know, say, say Bain report on, sure. can you, do you find it curiosity inducing? And the results were such many people after they did their scaled down micro experiments, they realized, oh, actually I, I, I love it or I hate it. Sure. And both, both, both answers are quite revealing. Sure. So you want to scale down these experiments, make it super simple to do. Because if you don't like the first step or the second step at all, yeah. it is unlikely that you will like the finished product. It is possible. It is possible sometimes the first few steps are really hard and then you start having fun. But you should have an uh, intuitive sense of uh, whether this particular thing is in your direction or not. So make it super easy, super simple, super scaled down. Want to start a coffee shop? Just open a lemonade stand on the, you know, in your uh, neighborhood. See whether you can get two people to come. On Network Capital, I said, okay, forget building a billion dollar, trillion dollar company. Those metrics anyway don't mean anything. Can I, can I find thousand people around the world who would be willing to spend $10 a month on mm -hmm. advancing their careers. Mm -hmm. This was like a very important goal for me. That mm -hmm. Can I, can't I? And does the mm -hmm. process of getting there excite, excite me or not? Yeah. And what do I learn? And the result of that micro experiment and thousand also was also much later. Thousand was a more elaborate goal. Yeah. Um, the first step was, can I get like 10 people? 
can I get one person to actually mm -hmm. put in their credit card for something which was so nebulous to begin with, mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. career advancement, mentoring, these are not new terms, but mm -hmm. perhaps a community-based model where peer learning is done at scale, yeah. will people actually engage in something like that? So the experiments leaded me towards that. And I think if I did something well was to look at the scaled down version of it and really analyze how I felt doing that. That's a, that's a great uh, concept, uh, Utkarsh. And I, I think it's a great way to think about, you know, new opportunities, new careers. I know we're running out of time. I'll just leave one thought, uh, you know, for the group. Part of, I think, the stickiness, the what prevents people from trying new things, um, is also that in many instances, their sense of identity is tied to what they're doing, right? And therefore, they find it very difficult to give that up. Certainly, I can tell you, you know, uh, as you continue to spend more time in an organization, your sense of identity is tied to that organization. Uh, and I've seen many instances where people find it just extremely difficult to give that up because they don't know how to create a new identity for themselves, how to give up what they have and then to create a new identity for themselves. And it's not an easy process. And so I would I would suggest to this group, if that's part of also what you're going through, it may be that you have great ideas, you want to explore them, you're doing you know all the things that you're advising, doing the micro experiments, scaling down something and trying and seeing if you like it. But you're still not able to make that next step because of this fact that I, I am I am who I am because of what I do today. And I'm not sure about, therefore, whether I want to be, you know, something else in the future, is that uh, a group of mentors and a group of supporters, you know, all the things we've talked about during this conversation, those can be extremely helpful and very powerful to help you take you on your journey. So part of this is not just having the great ideas. It's also about, you know, creating a vision for the future that's separate from what you're doing today. So separating your identity yeah. from, from what you're doing today. So, yeah, that's, that's such an important mental model to think about. And, uh, you know, you briefly alluded to the fact that you, you left Bain, uh, and then you came back to Bain. And, uh, I think like now that you've been there for 24 years at such a senior level, uh, you also must feel really attached yeah. to the brand and attached yeah. to the job. So I can only imagine like leaving like that, leaving that company would not have been easy. And yeah. coming back might have felt, uh, you know, coming back home. I don't know. But I think you might, you have direct experience of talking about uh, what you just yeah. mentioned. Yeah, I did that much earlier in my career. This was almost, this was actually was 20 years ago in the early stages of my career with Kirsch. Um but, you know, it's a challenge that continues to exist for people who have been uh, like me, you know, who've been a, uh, at a firm for a very long time. Uh, and so I do have as a, a, a good part of my identity that is tied to Bain. So the fact that you referred to me as, let's say, a partner at Bain & Company, you know, over the course of the conversation or the fact that I was the managing partner for Bain in India for many years, uh, those are very much the way people refer to me. Right. And therefore, it's become a yeah. part of my identity. Right. And so part of, uh, you know, if I was to leave Bain, would I have that identity? Would people still refer to me as, you know, 
as being associated with Bain and would that still be important? Would people still value what I have to say because I'm no longer at Bain? Um, I mean, giving that as an example, for many people, when you've been at an organization for a while, that organization becomes very much a part of your identity and becomes a sticky glue because of which you're not really able to create or envision a new future for yourself. So it's one of the things to really think about. Well, definitely, Shri, this was such a fascinating conversation. It really means a lot that you wrote the forward, uh, um, the, the blurb for my book, and that you spent an hour with us discussing the seductive illusion of hard work. I, I yeah. this conversation and uh, the thousands of people who've logged in, they would have learned so much. I'm really excited, uh, you know, for your next class in the CEO Fellowship. Ever so grateful for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much, Utkarsh, for having me. It's been a pleasure. And congratulations again on the book. It's, uh, it's a great read. And um, it's not surprising it's done as well as it, as it has. <laughs>